This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Are you looking for a career change but worry that you will face difficulty trying to get your first job in closure? Do you have a limited functional programming background? Would you like a guided path to learning professional closure? PurelyFunctional.tv's online mentoring has just launched. It is step-by-step online mentoring taking you from closure dappler to professional. Sign up with the link PurelyFunctional.tv geekery to get 50% off the first month. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, coming up on February 18th and 19th in 2016 in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place. The call for papers is open and will continue through December 1st. An early bird registration is now open as well. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal or to register. And make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off early bird and regular registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent, non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global Closure community, as well as introductory level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with closure. The call for papers is currently open and will close on November 30th. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to help spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host Proctor, and this week with us we have Rob Sullivan, better known as Data Chomp on the internet. Rob, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hey, I'm a fully functional DBA, and I spend some of my time coding. So I think you'd call it a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-one. And I knew you from my time in .NET, and you were around there with doing some screencasts and quote-unquote grumpy DBA of trying to bring people thinking about databases and understanding what's going on when you're using ORMs and tools like that along those lines. And then you were on things like This Developer's Life with Scott Hanselman and Rob Connery, and you did some TechPub videos with Rob Connery about managing a database. So I knew you from the database world, so I thought it'd be interesting to get you on to see your perspective, because I've also known you've dabbled in applications as well to be able to say, 
I know what you all are doing. I'm not completely in my shelter here looking at the DBO only, so I can actually give you advice. We'll start with how did you break out into getting into that side of programming of the software development? And then we'll go on to kind of how you went into functional programming from there. Cool. So I spent many years as a very traditional SQL Server DBA. From there, you know, I kind of hit one of those realizations where if I'm going to be a really good DBA, I need to understand that, you know, app devs and, you know, the SAN nerds, like they're basically my customers. And maybe if I start running the databases like a business and really focus on customer support, I can get a lot of happy consumers and therefore the database, you know, if I'm the primary care provider for the database, it'll start being happy. So it's one of those things where it kind of dawned on me that it's an unrealistic expectation to always expect the app devs to know everything about how the database works, but I invest, you know, very little of my time in understanding what they're doing, right? So it became a very obvious imbalance. And I thought, well, you know, why don't I try this? They do. You know, and see if I can do it and see if I can start speaking that language and talking about the concepts and, you know, using numbers in code in real proof rather than opinions to start kind of building that bridges and moving conversations forward. That led me to the same kind of path I do when I try any languages like, well, let's see if I can build, you know, a basic little CLI app, right? Can I make some burritos and can I have a fake customer order burrito? And then from a CLI, it's like, well, let's try this as a web app. And then I started doing that in C-sharp and playing around, getting to know ORMs really well, specifically like Entity Framework and Link to SQL and starting there and really like watching how it interacted with the database, seeing its problems and really wanting something better, right? Because as you use, you know, that mountain of garbage like EF, you start to think developers deserve better than this. And I think that's, that's one of the things that really got me focused into helping out with the micro ORMs on the .NET side. And then again, you know, more interacting, helping, trying to improve the relationship with app devs and building out some really cool things and showing this is how you use a profiler to see how your ORM works. And this is how it tells you information. Because like, if you're expecting me, the DBA, to just sit and blindly watch a profiler and all these queries fly by, like you're crazy. There's a whole bunch of you. There's one of me, like I'm not going to sit and do that garbage work when you can just very easily, you have the context of the app, the code you write, what you're doing. Run this little profiler, let it help you, and let's not fight all day. So <laughs> talking to devs and you know, doing that, I, I had a, just a whole lot of fun working with micro ORMs. This is probably around the time that you and I met at a .NET conference in Dallas. Again, I was you know, talking about Nindy Framework there. I was talking about it in a very, uh, so I'm an educator and a bridge builder, and I think the approach I took into educating the audience, well, I thought it was very positive. Maybe it wasn't taken that way. But in that talk, in that conference, I met you and uh, I met my friend Amir Rajan, and he had a very interesting talk about the combination of Ruby and .NET together and how we can use the best of both languages to really tweak his workflow and do something cool. And that, that's something that really stuck with me. So I think this was also around the time that Rob Connery was doing his Kool-Aid talk at NDC. Did you ever see that one? No, I never saw the Kool-Aid talk. It's a really great talk. So I kind of had those two seeds planted in my mind. And uh, I think at TechPub, we were probably talking about Postgres or considering Postgres instead of SQL Server, some things like that. And just that, that kind of recipe started in my mind of, you know, maybe, maybe I can try something new out. Maybe I can look at a different direction, try some Ruby, try some other languages and see, 
Sia playing with those helps me bring something back to .NET or to SQL Server or to Postgres. Because I think learning is cumulative. If I spent 10 years with SQL Server, I don't lose that knowledge when I go try something new. Everything builds on itself. And that's why I think it's so important to try other languages to do something. You not just say it, you start to complete yourself as a professional and look at things with a different lens. And so trying other things out, you see some of the things that many app devs might consider boring in the .NET stack or not fun. And you start getting that eye for something else. Just really, really, really getting fascinated and falling for Postgres. I thought, you know, it's probably a time with the pace that the .NET stack moves in SQL Server, I kind of hedged my bets that I could probably go five years or more without reading a single thing on SQL Server and be able to hop right back in. That was the premise that I came to. So I thought, well, how do most people get the DBA jobs? It's by way of accidental DBA, correct? For the most part. That would be my guess, unless you're in a small startup where you're kind of forced into that position <laughs> just because you don't actually have a proper DBA. Yeah, well, by default, you were the accidental DBA then. Yeah. So I looked around for local Postgres jobs. Wasn't much there. At the time, I wasn't seeing much on the remote side of things. So I thought, you know what? Why don't I just try and pretend I'm an app dev and get a job and just take over the database? <laughs> right? It seemed like if I want to do Postgres full time, this seemed like a very natural way in our industry to do that. So that's when I became a Ruby on Rack developer, playing around with Sinatra and Rails and working for a couple small companies, building things, trying things, getting more experience with Postgres, doing awful things with Ruby and Active Record. I felt like Active Record had a lot in common with Entity Framework and in Hibernate. So that was very natural to hop into those, right? It's a lot of the same pain points and just huge objects in memory for basic database stuff. So like that was natural to adapt to and fix. So essentially, you took the route of there's plenty of accidental DBAs that are probably doing Postgres. I'm a real DBA, so can I get in as a dev and become the accidental DBA yeah. and become the official DBA because of that route? Yep. And some of this, too, is, you know, I've been giving other people advice, too, of, you know, if you're not happy or you want to explore something, you know, go do it. Go try it. You can't always expect to learn a language or something putting in two hours a week after you spent all day working on it. You know, try it. And this was also good for me to kind of put my money where my mouth is. If I want to be doing this, then why don't I just go and try and switch careers? And I kept doing that, going to different shops. You know, I ended up at a closure shop. You ended up doing SQL Server work again. And my original premise of being able to go five years or so without looking or touching SQL Server was in fact true. I was able to just hop back in. And I don't know, I think it's been really fun and really cool seeing all the different things that people are doing with different languages. Because sometimes, you know, you, you get comfortable with your first language and you know, you're like, okay, I can do things. I'm proficient. This might be all I ever need, right? I think many people in our industry are very risk averse and thinking that there's something out there, mentally, you might think it's better or newer. So you want to steer away from it just because you spent so much time doing this or, you know, my hands are crippled because of the way I've been using ReSharper in Visual Studio, right? But that's not true. That's just a lie your brain tells you. You can go out there, you can try different things, and you can do many things. And it's a lot of fun. And it seems like a lot of that comes down to what you said before was, I lose my knowledge as soon as I move to something else. So everything I've done up to this point is completely invalidated. When in reality, as you said, a lot of people who find out and they jump across things find that it doesn't actually 
invalidate anything. In fact, it makes it richer. Right. Some of the most positive things I've been able to say about SQL Server are from trying other databases. Even when you rage quit something to go try something else, that learning is cumulative and you still take that knowledge with you. And to me, it's given me a bit of a, the world's not so bad feeling by trying different things and seeing what all technologies can learn from each other. And figuring out where those things fit in in a stack too, right? Yep. And fast forward to playing around with Elixir lately. I don't think I would even be playing or touching Elixir if it wasn't for just all the goodwill I've seen from the creators and maintainers talking about like, yeah, we thought this was a good idea. We brought it in. Just being very open about that and giving praise to ER Lang and all that other stuff. Just to me, like the positivity and the willing to adopt openly ideas from other languages, very alluring. And, uh, you know, just really kind of grabbed me and thought, hmm, you know, I want to look at this. This is cool. So you mentioned you went into ClojureSome from your Ruby experiments and your C-sharp experiments. How did you find, and this is what I want to get into with you because I think it's a really interesting perspective is you've got someone whose primary mindset and what they consider themselves is DBA first. And how did you find moving to a functional language? Because if you're doing that, you've kind of got imperative procedural OO styles that you're working with, but you're also coming from a relational background of being able to manage SQL, the language, and then making that transition into functional programming. How did you find the adjustment going into and picking up functional languages as someone who considers themselves as a programmer dabbler as secondary versus yep. someone who's coming in and saying, hey... I'm here, I've fallen in love with my first language, and this is the thing I hold true, and now I have to make a new way of thinking about the things. So how did you find that transition? Yep. So let me start off by saying I try to be very open at how terrible at functional languages I am, right? Because I'm just not good at them. And I can, hopefully, I know enough and have played around enough that I can appreciate how bad I am. The other thing is, the first time... I saw Clojure. It was in the capacity as a DBA, not as a, a developer. I looked at it. I looked at what the developer is doing, and I was like, wow, Clojure. This is definitely a keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. I need to talk to more of these Clojure people. Because it looked horrible, and I didn't like it. And I thought about that as like, man, why am I so hard on Clojure? And part of that is, I think by nature of being the DBA, you get stuck seeing the worst of every language, right? When you call on the DBA, it's not because like some method was awesome, truly performant, and is a source of praise. You know, I get pulled into the shows, right? And so, oh, sorry about the language. This is also like my very first introduction to functional programming. I was like, I don't know the approach they're doing. I can't read all these parentheses. What is going on? Okay, so it's actually the JVM. It's just so confusing. But the thing is, I haven't met a closureista who isn't extremely smart and who doesn't just care a ton about their application and what they're doing and who doesn't take a lot of pride in their work. So to me, like seeing that in the person who is writing this, even though it's trashing the database and just garbage at that level, that was definitely a benefit of the doubt of this person's trying really hard, but obviously super smart, but maybe they're just a little tied to the functional way of doing things. And maybe it's educational opportunity to show, yes, you can do this functionally, but if you stop trying to write new libraries and stop trying to build all this code and just look at a couple of joint statements and watch your logs, 
look at how amazing we can make this thing perform. So it's a lot of stuff like that. And I don't know how much we want to talk about closure because I don't always have the most positive things to say. But <laughs> I, I, I definitely love closure people. I think it's a good perspective because, again, as you said, there's things that every language brings to the forefront and there's things that people find lacking in a language and all languages aren't for everyone. So what were some of those things you saw about closure that you liked? And aside from the smart people and the smart community, and then I'd love to touch on some of the things you felt were lacking because, again, you've got a different perspective than a lot of the audience. And I think it's useful to hear where those things may fall down in your perspective. Oh, I don't think I have one thing in particular because when I would try and write closure and do closure, like it just never clicked and it never jived. And because it didn't click or jive, I didn't give it the time it needed. Does that make sense? Okay. So a lot of my closure time was spent just directly at the database access level and playing with a couple libraries. But in pairing up with closure devs and seeing how they navigated and how quickly they could get to what they want to talk about and how clearly they could express the intent of the code, like I thought that was really attractive. It just, at the end of the day, wasn't for me. I can say every negative thing in the world about closure, but at the end of the day, it taught me and showed me that there's something to functional programming. There's a value here. There's something that's neat. I just don't get it yet. And that's also like, you know, I'll make fun of closure for fun because I don't like it. That's totally just my opinion. And that's based around the fact that I'm not good at closure. I try to be real clear about that. You know, when I make fun of it, that's just me and my limitations as developer. You know, and same with JavaScript. JavaScript's, well, I think JavaScript's easier to poke fun of. But to me, like, I don't mind making fun of a language that I've tried. It didn't click and it didn't work. So I totally respect what it does. It just didn't work for me. And that's great. And that's, to me, it's something that set up Elixir to really grab a hold of me. Because Elixir, I knew it was functional. I knew it'd have some of the power and the concepts and that developer happiness and passion that I saw with Clojure, but I could start playing with it right away. And it, it clicked pretty well. Like I could do things. I could get early wins and build on top of that. And then I thought, man, if I can get proficient enough at Elixir, I can probably go back and give Clojure another shot and see how I like it. To me, like that's really exciting to be able to think that in maybe... 12 months from now, I can go try and pick up closure again and have a way better experience just because I'm coming from a higher point of knowledge with functional programming and understanding the intent better. Then how I'll have to find new ways of making fun of closure. So that's like a downside. Well, I'm sure just playing with any language you can find, especially as you learn more about that language, you can find more subtle and darker ways to express yep. that humor. That's yep. more of an inside joke to those people, which knowing you is something that you enjoy immensely as well, that very subtle humor as well. Yes, I like the subtlety. And yeah, everything has warts. If I didn't have a, a reality deflector barrier, I would say more negative things about Postgres. But I like it, I love it, I have a ton of fun, so I don't say bad things about it. That doesn't mean, like, you should totally treat my opinion on that with a ton of bias. So you've been getting into Elixir. You said that would became more natural. Have you found that adaptation about getting into Elixir and bringing in some of the more of those functional concepts. Because functional programming is a completely different way of thinking than the object-oriented or procedural method, but it does feel a little closer in line with thinking in relations that you would program in SQL. Yep. 
the most frustrating part I have with Elixir is isn't like that I could build a little CLI app and make some burritos. Like that was fun, that was easy, and that was natural. And I could do it reasonably OO and not have a problem, right? It's not good Elixir, but I could create something and I could work with it. The problem I have is hanging around people like Johnny Wynn and Paul Lamb and Rob Connery who are writing really nice Elixir code. That's a, just an absolute joy to read. And it's fast and performant and clear. And then I look at my garbage, like that's frustrating. <laughs> but it's also very, you know, it gives me a lot of optimism and hope that if I just spend a little more time and work harder and adopt some of these concepts, I don't think it'll be too long until I really, you know, can do something readable that I'm proud of and I can start contributing more. Well, and Jeff Atwood, Coding Horror, who did Stack Overflow, was big in the .NET community. And I remember he said, if you're not hating your code when you go back and look at it after a given period of time, you really aren't progressing. Yeah. <laughs> and that the goal should be essentially to get better every day and be less worse than you were today than you were yesterday. So that does seem like it's good motivation as well that says, yes, I recognize I've got things I can improve and I can make a strategy about how to improve them. Yeah. Especially when you have other people that, because I know you and Rob Connery do a lot together. And if you have that close cohort of people, you can bounce ideas off of and exchange and get that feedback. It makes it so much easier than just doing it on your own in a bubble with no feedback. Yeah, totally. And I think Rob saw some tweet I did about Elixir and he's like, oh, I'm going to play with this. Called me up on Skype. I don't know if we spent even an hour just playing around with the Postgres driver, just having an absolute blast, writing some Elixir, making mistakes, laughing at each other. And it was just so much fun. And it made me, it's one of those, you know, you think you're an experienced developer and you think you know things, you think you know how to build apps. And sometimes you just forget to pair up with someone and have fun. And, you know, even if nothing comes with it, there's a lot of subtle lessons you learn and pick up. I, I, just, I don't know. I just like having resets like that, building empathy. You know, it's one of the things that got me started playing with other languages is how can I empathize with the Epitaph more if I'm not putting myself in their shoes? And I had heard that from Rob Connery on Twitter and some other things where he's had some posts and he cites you for learning Elixir and putting it on his radar. So how did Elixir get picked up and put on your radar? <laughs> That's uh, a it's a great question. I had some people I know, uh, app devs might refer to them as friends. I noticed that I just happened to be in some conversations where something that never happens in Ruby is where Postgres becomes the bottleneck, right? I rarely get Postgres performance questions in the Ruby and Rails world and stuff. It's all like, you know, why is active record basically a car with flat tires, things like that. And people are playing around with Elixir and Postgres in Phoenix like it was almost where Postgres was their bottleneck. And to me, that made me really excited because, you know, as a DBA, it's, wow, I get to really get back into performance tuning and calculating costs and stuff with the database and not having to worry as much about the way that data is being accessed. So that was super exciting. That got my attention. And I'm a big fan of Jose from his contributions to the Ruby and Rails world. He has a lot of credibility with me. Same with Yehuda Katz and Ember. I'm not a JavaScript person, but I will try Ember just on the respect and credibility that Yehuda brings. It was kind of the same thing with Elixir. Like, you know, Jose's doing this. It's getting near 1.0. When it gets 1.0, you know, I'm going to make some time and see what's going on here. And when I started taking some time and looking and seeing Beam and some of the different things you could do and watching the supervisors and stuff, 
that's where my interest wasn't just on the development side. It's you know my job as a DBA, as an ops person, and seeing that, wow, this thing that this is built on, this serves like my day job purposes really, really nicely. So that created just one of those instant marriages of where I spend my time. Like, I think it needs to be over in here because it brings a lot of things together. Yeah, I've been hearing more and more about it. And I kind of have seen some reference to some of that Postgres stuff because I know Postgres was one of the early selections of Elixir as well. Of We're not going to target MySQL as one of the first things to build on because we... Yeah, they have standards. <laughs> we want a database that will actually help protect us from ourselves and not account for data loss because we've happened to misconfigure it wrong out of the box. Mm-hmm. So have you have you played with Ecto yet? I've done a little bit with Ecto. So since we have some of the same background, what was one of your first thoughts when you saw Ecto? When I first saw Ecto, it seemed reminiscent of Link. That's exactly what I thought. And I know Eric Meadows Johnson has come out and said he took inspiration. The Then further digging into Ecto, which is the... For lack of a better word, and I know Johnny Wynn said he's used this term and said he was going to get in trouble for it, was ORM, mm-hmm. even though there's no real objects. But the models seem an interesting approach to that problem instead of just having a generic data structure that you're actually querying against right. structure objects instead of actually doing a little more functional, which is what I think you're working with Rob on Mobius as well is. You're returning essentially a list of hashes that represent a return set of your data. Yeah. And you know, from what I've seen, I've, you know, I'm not an Ecto expert yet. I've just you know, played with it, looked with it, built the basic, create a burrito and stuff. The model, I have no like real open complaints about Ecto other than the models. Like To a new person, it's like, what in the world is going on here? Because there's kind of stuff everywhere. It can just take you back a little bit of like, what's this, you know, a change set? Like, what's that? But I think that's what's, you know, I first started playing with Ruby, and I think Rob Connery had some of the same experience of, you look at Active Record, and you're like, eh, that's, you know, whatever. But then you look at the Jeremy Evans SQL library, and you're like, wow, this reminds me of like one of the micro RMs we built in .NET. It's fun. It's blazing fast. The object size isn't huge. I love this library. And you know, maybe Elixir needs something like that too. Just a fun syntax. It gets out of your way. It gives you all the niceties for your common crud. But if you need to use SQL, if you really need to flex the power of Postgres, it doesn't get in your way. It lets you do that. So that's where, you know, Mobius has been a really exciting project. And obviously I'm not doing much on the code side because if you saw my Elixir code, (laughs) you know, there's no way you'd accept a pull request. But being able to watch what's occurring on the database side is a lot of fun. Watching the syntax and the API that, that's being built is a lot of fun. It's easy to use. And as that library matures and we start getting to really cool problems, like you know, Johnny Wynn's working on the connection broker or you know the connection persistence, it's really exciting being able to see that, the speed that's occurring. It's just a fun project and it's with a great group of friends and you can't, it really doesn't get any better than that. Like that's open source to me. Yeah, I've been kind of, Interested just because I try and play with whatever language I can, but I've had that Erlang background. I had the Clojure background, and I thought Clojure is really interesting. Wanted to dive into Erlang. Picked up Elixir because I can see it's picking up Steam as well. And as you said, I like a lot of the way that Supervisor and 
structure goes. And it's one of those things for me. It makes me think about those things even when I don't build in that of, okay, how are we going to set up a monitoring to know when things fail? How are we going to handle failures and think of failures as first-class citizens instead of always just programming for the happy path? So we had a hack day at work and I pulled out Phoenix and Elixir for something and used Ectel on it, introduced another coworker. And as you kind of said, I needed to jump down into raw SQL because I'm one of those who's been the accidental DBA with a small company. Essentially, we were all accidental DBAs. And so I've never been afraid of getting my hands dirty with SQL, as an app dev would say, but I don't really <laughs> think it's getting my hands dirty either. It's just flexing another tool for power, but it's one of those things that are exciting that say, look, there are some of us who aren't actually scared of SQL. We may not be writing the best SQL when we pass it off to you, and you would look at us and say, uh, what are you doing here? And I say, oh, I didn't know about that feature. Thank you very much. But having that ability to actually get down and drop out of that higher level of, of abstraction when when needed is a useful feature to be able to have and be able to handle that nicely in, in the same manner that you have when you're working at the higher level of abstraction as well. Yeah. And, you know, Postgres is so fascinating. The number of extensions, the rich data types, the querying syntax, like you can do so many neat things in it. And it has so many rich features and exciting things in it that Postgres is so feature rich that to sort of constrain it to the limits of your ORM or your what you're using to talk to the databases, uh, to me, like it's almost offensive. Like you can do so many cool things with it. You can get a number and a cost for every action you perform to empirically say it's better or worse. And being able to control the cost and put yourself in a better situation with just a minimal time investment in SQL is, I think it's something that you know, doesn't get enough love in the, in the developer community. And just because you bring up Postgres, from what I've seen is there's all kinds of stuff that if you actually had to deal with an ORM or whatever general store without actually diving down into the SQL is things like the geolocation plugins and the JSON plugins and key value store plugins where Postgres is essentially not a database anymore, but it's a engine that can drive 15 different types of databases now. Oh, yeah. I mean, things like range types, you know, if you have to do any sort of scheduling or duration, you can actually put a range of dates or integers and build constraints off that. Like, that's a great way to be a helping hand to the business logic in your application. Because you may not catch everything in your app. And apps can sometimes be used in interesting and nefarious ways. And to just have that foundation of stability and exactness in your database too to support your app is, I mean, I love it. I love, I love having that safety net for when I'm on the coding trippies. And from an app dev perspective, those safety nets are nicer because I've worked at a number of places where people don't always go through the app until you hit the database as well. And now all of a sudden you've got some stuff in the database that is not valid according to your app, which is yep. supposed to be the source of truth of the business logic, but someone's gone through and said, I don't like this value. We need to go update it. And I'm going to go update it straight through the database. Yep. And now you're having to add more code to your app to compensate for it. And you start running up that technical debt credit card. So you mentioned part of what intrigued you about Elixir is that Postgres now started to become a bottleneck. 
What was some of those things that you were seeing and how have you found Postgres holding up? Because I know there was some conversations when I was curious about what Rob Connery was doing because I've seen his other micro ORMs. And there was a poor, I just put out, said, hey, there's a couple of connection pool stuff. Yep. But he was like, oh, yeah, we'll ask you because he's like, Postgres can handle like 10,000 open connections at a time or some ungodly amount where you compared to other databases. So what were some of those challenges that kind of helped enlighten you and bring you back and get the DBA fire back in your eyes? Yeah. So that's been fun stuff. Postgres, it doesn't really have default connection brokering built into it. You know, it's something that you get, you know, like SQL Server has that layer in front of it. So you can you can get stupid with like 30,000 connections to SQL Server and it's fine. Postgres proper, like is very sensitive about its connection limits because, you know, it directly impacts, you know, aspects of memory and how it manages memory. So when I'm testing or playing with Mobius, I have, you know, my own pooler, PG Bouncer in front of it. So, you know, I, I can get stupid with connections. But the reality is for the developers using it, you know, they're not going to be in a place where they can just stand up a formal connection pooler in front of their Postgres instance. What if I just want to deploy my Phoenix app to Heroku, which has a 20 connection limit? Or say I want to benchmark and, you know, like use Travis CI, which has some other connection limit on his testing Postgres. Like we need to be, and I, I thought it's really cool that you created that issue. Like we need to be cognizant of what a typical Postgres environment might look like for a typical dev and, you know, work with that. Put in some sort of connection persistence because it matters. But in terms of just the interaction with Postgres and the speed and being able to see things render in microseconds again is awesome. It's a lot of fun. When we're in environments like this and we're getting down to lower levels of abstraction or languages that can run faster, because I'm sure Haskell and some of these others have this kind of feature functionality as well, where they're very... Some of them are very close to the metal and actually can get down into that milliseconds as well. What are some of those things that kind of we should be thinking about that changes versus if we're coming from something like a C Sharp or a Ruby on Rails or even Java where we're using heavyweight ORMs that do a lot of stuff for you, hide the magic, but is really not the bottleneck on the performance of the database? Yeah, Um I think one of the things to pay attention to is your concurrency and isolation levels of am I mutating data and pulling it out and just starting to get a weird scenario like that because things are running so fast and operations are running so close together. And, you know, in a brokered environment, you know, what happens? What do I need to be careful and plan for? The other thing to do is, you know, use extensions like PG stat statements that start to show you where queries are going sideways. One of the things I don't like about existing Elixir communities and stuff is that on languages like your .NETs and your Rubies, there's a lot more tooling to help show like when you're doing something wrong and surface that really quickly. I haven't seen that with regards to data access. I haven't seen that yet with Elixir. So for me, it's just read the logs. But it's easy to get stuck in the pre-optimization route. And, you know, if you're Phoenix, if Postgres is the bottleneck and the whole thing still renders in like 40 microseconds, who cares? Like, it's just, you know, let's just celebrate that. And while people are just doing demo apps, like build my blog or my to-do list, again, who cares? Your data set's never going to be large. 
But when it does, that's when some of the cool stuff around Postgres replication and getting read replicas and some load balancing on what you're doing gets really important. Being cognizant of your indexes and watching costs. I think Active Record removed this feature where you can you used to have auto-explain on your queries. And I have no idea why they removed that or if they actually did remove it. But I thought it was really annoying because one thing I liked was being able to, as I'm running something, get that execution plan and seeing if something's going sour or you know, just seeing the SQL itself. Like, did I go into some weird like for left outer join mode or you know, some weird select star you know, correlated query or some full Cartesian product, things like that, where right now when I play with Elixir, I'm just kind of like in, I'm just combing logs and playing the trust game that it's not going to go weird on me. So I would like to see like some of the tooling come up around it, but that, you know, that takes time, but it's still a really exciting path. I have no idea if I just started wandering on that. No, that's all good information. And I was going to dig in a little deeper, which was, and I think one of the things that makes functional programming in general, Elixir, specifically from your experience and some other and just other functional languages, is the whole concurrency issue where things can happen now at any time and there is no necessarily order. So now you might be having a query that runs here for this thing and is potentially with much shorter query times, but you have much more queries accessing at any given time. Seems like it could also be a giant recipe to increase lock or potential for it just at the small scale where it's not going to be a long-term block, but it's going to, you're going to get a lock for a few handful of milliseconds or whatever that hurts your query time because you've now got this massive concurrency that you're throwing at a database. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully you won't, you know, there'll be locking and deadlocking, but hopefully no victims of it because it'll clear out, but it's, it's something to pay attention to. And to me, it's, you know, Postgres does a lot of, exciting releases about like, oh, you know, now we do JSON and JSON-B and now we have V8 inside of Postgres. But some of the stuff and the way they're optimizing locking and getting linear scalability on the number of cores you use is very, very underappreciated. Like there's just a lot of cool things that happen in each release that, you know, are trying to, you know, improve performance and make everything better and faster because we're undeniably going into worlds of a lot more concurrency just with with mobile and API and bots, you know, just stuff everywhere, trying to get access and get data all the time. And you, you have to be cognizant of what the concurrency story is. But at the same time, you know, out of the box, Postgres optimistic concurrency, like it's very helpful and you probably, you most likely won't have a problem, but it's something to keep an eye on. And another thing is, you know, when we talk about Postgres bottlenecks, you know, we're no longer in a world where a lot of us are running on raw hardware anymore, right? So sometimes Postgres being slow is a matter of you've thrown it into this shared environment where anyone can pee in the pool. I think we call it the cloud now. And sometimes it's, is it fair to attribute some performance problems to Postgres when you're really, you've thrown it on somewhere where you're just fighting for resources and, you know, you're fighting for like an EBS volume that's not so fast and has poor IOPS. That's where I think things are interesting in modern development in database administration versus, you know, like 20 years ago, where our problem was a single or, you know, one or two 32-bit processors and not having a concurrency level at the database level. Like everything was, you know, single process. We didn't have, you know, NUMA and things to think about at that. Now we're on shared environments where we just have a lot of potential IO latency and, you know, it's neat. And 
working in the past jobs, if you had a hundred requests per minute for a single server was a pretty high thing. So the concurrency story there is like, okay, yeah, we have to worry about rover table level locking, but not as much as, as if you're going to be having a bunch of these other things that are going on at the same time, because you know what? You've got a hundred requests per second. You've got other operations. You've got database network latency and you got your database query. And then, okay, you might have five queries running at every single, any single time versus, okay, now you've just scaled that up and you might have 10,000 or a hundred thousand connections all hitting the database or going on at the same time. And now even if 10% of those hit the database, that's still 10,000 connections to the database that are open potentially. I'm in a microservices environment right now. And that's kind of interesting in the fact that while you are, you know, juggling a lot of chainsaws, it's interesting in that, you know, there's a handful of services that are just like extremely write heavy. And then there's this other set of services over here that are just you know, like a hundred percent read. And for all the problems that microservices create as a DBA, like that is really nice to have that level of predictability at your data layer. So for people having the microservices versus monolith debate, to me, like that's an interesting topic to bring up. It's just the at the data layer, layer having that you know separation of, of read and write concerns versus like throwing it all at one giant database and watching it puke everywhere. Which reminds me of the CQRS command query responsibility segregation stuff that was being promoted in .NET around the time that we had met where here's your write store and here's your read store and you're, you're going to do everything from your read store until you're writing it and then there will be something else that denormalizes it into your read store yep. on a very, very fast but slightly delayed schedule so it doesn't impact your writes. Yep. That's all, it's, it's neat stuff. I was curious how you handle, because you're in a lot of languages, a lot of different environments and stuff. How do you handle or how do you deal with just the sheer vocabulary of it all? You know, if I go to AWS or if I go to Azure or whatever, like everyone wants to use their own marketed name, their own branding thing. You know, if, even though it's a lot of the same concepts, you know, everyone wants to call it something different. And I think you see that a little bit in programming too. Like when I started talking to the closures, it was like, you know, let's use these functors and monads. And it's like, what, what are you even talking about? I was wondering like how you, someone who's in languages, you know, extremely often, how you deal with the grind of vocabulary. There's a lot with the, again, you mentioned functor and monads. There's a lot that I still have to keep digging in and researching. And then the other way I personally handle that is I become pedantic <laughs> and say, okay, you're using this word. This doesn't mean what you think it means from what I can tell. Because there's also been times where I've tried to go back and things like understand the fundamental principles and things like the hip buzzwords of agile and continuous integration and continuous delivery versus continuous deployment and all yep. that kind of stuff and try and cite where did some of these terms come from and understand what the original intent of those meanings were. So like when it comes back down to digging into functor and monad is trying to find those canonical definitions to get a good idea of what the canonical definition is. And then when people start using it and using that term and understand so when you're saying this, what do you mean when you say this thing? And then just try and figure out the relations and metaphors that and commonalities between those things. So probably in the same way that you figure out 
how a common table expression or a with clause where they're the same thing, but different databases use them in different terms. And if someone says, oh, yeah, we just need to uh, throw a CT there. <laughs> yeah, we just need to do something else with this projection. It's like, well, when you say projection, what are you talking about with a projection? Or we're trying to do a view or a window over the data. I think isn't isn't Phantom JS a projection? I don't know. I haven't really messed with Phantom JS, so it's just a terrible nerdy comment. Knowing you, I figured it was, but I hadn't had enough experience to figure out what the Phantom JS was going to be. I was either going to go with like projectors for watching Lord of the Rings or some sort of weird JavaScript library for projection. Ah, and so there's a lot of that that goes on. Is like okay, so in the same way that. Databases have a bunch of different terminology. It's just how do you figure out what someone's talking about when they talk about a view over the data, right? Yep. Are you talking about a logical view, a conceptual view of something or not? So One of the ones that gets me in the database world is the upsert. Like, are, are you talking about a real upsert or are you talking about a the merge statement or what? Are you talking about like just a function that does, you know, a check and then updates or inserts? I feel that's a very nuanced term. Yeah, and it's a lot of those nuanced terms. It's getting in and saying, you're using this word, and what do you mean when you use this word? What are you actually driving at? Are you driving at one of these definitions, or is there yet another definition that you're using that I don't know about and hasn't even crossed my mind? For a lot of it, in the same way that you know, a database will basically kind of rewrite and parse the SQL, you send it, I find myself just kind of rewriting some of that terminology in my head of like, I'm a project manager. I just instantly rewrite as your project assistant or what's another one that, you know, I us you know, let's go put it in a bucket. No, just like put it in a directory. And that's how I try to combat it. It's just rewrite it into common language. Sometimes it helps take the person down a notch too. Well, and some of that is just trying to figure out what they're meaning when they first say those words as well. So, yep. So the other thing I want to get you before we run out of time and want to make sure we talk about is you're starting up and experimenting with, and it's small scale now, but you're experimenting with a kind of a virtual based user group where it's planned to be done online and over Hangouts, almost a MOOC massive online open courseware kind of <laughs> thing, but for, but for user groups. So how did that go about and get started? And what have you found so far starting it up? I've been involved in user groups for I don't even know how long, for forever. And they suffer many of the same problems, especially in regions like Oklahoma City or basically just not enormous metropolises. You're always trying to find enough space. You're always trying to find pizza. You're always trying to offset those costs. You're always trying to, you know, are there even enough people interested in it? And we have uh, this just kind of monthly get together we do. And one of the things we talked about it was, and a lot of this was my friend Paul Lamb's doing, what could basically be like a minimum viable user group? Right. What could take out all the problems of sourcing prizes, sourcing pizza, sourcing location, and just get some people that really care together, you know, to talk about it and learn and improve at something and not be a huge time investment. Oklahoma City, it may not have the biggest population, but geographically it's enormous. So there's actual travel logistics and like, well, that's on the south side of the city. I won't go. And Paul's like, let's just do a hangout. We'll get the 57 problems, their exercises book. Just see, like, you know what? Can we do some of these in Elixir? Can we try it? Can we learn through, you know, pointed examples with limited scope? And then another thing is, well, you know, we know some people in the Elixir community. 
can we invite them? You know, can we get 15, 20 minutes of their time to come on and share something without, again, there's not the elixir population in Oklahoma City. So let's expand out. Can we get, you know, a Rob Connery to come on for 15 minutes and talk about how he might do something or what's exciting to him or Johnny Wynn or Proctor? And it just seemed like a really sensible way to try and build up a building of a language community in your area where there's not necessarily a visible camp of people already. This is a very .NET heavy, very Java heavy area. So doing either of those is really easy, but there's a lot of ER Lang and Elixir people somehow in this area in the woodworks. Being able to get them, I think has been really cool. And it's that whole of one of the reasons you do user groups and stuff is to see a different way of doing things. Seeing that, you know, you have someone in reasonable proximity that you can talk to about this stuff and just, you know, finding more like-minded people to share and, you know, your passion of a language and building. And how have you found the response to that being? I've heard some stuff about it and it sounded like you started to get a good initial response. Is that something that you're finding is really viable and a good alternative in Oklahoma City that people can? And the reason I'm asking is there are people all over that probably listen to this and they may feel the same way where Sure, there's a ton of Java jobs in my community, and hey, I'm even in a big city, but nobody's going to come out to wherever I can get it hosted just because the number of X developers or people interested in X language aren't going to be coming out because A, it's right after another user group meeting of the same week or any other reason. Yeah, personally, can speak best for myself. I absolutely love it. Our host, Paul Lamb, he's an incredibly smart, knowledgeable, friendly person. He you know, makes it very inviting. One of the objectives was to keep the group kind of around 10 participants initially. So everyone has a voice. Everyone can speak up freely. First, you know, if you go to a 90-person JavaScript meetup or whatever, not too many people you know, have the confidence and the bravado to just like stand up and ask a question, right? But on a smaller group, it's much easier to voice or say like, man, you know, I totally didn't get that. You know, what's a monad? And I like that I don't have to travel into the city. I don't have to rework my schedule at home. I just eat dinner and then I go hop on and hang out with a couple of buddies for an hour and we talk code in a very adult and open and inviting way. It's very refreshing. So I like it. And, and what I've heard from other people is, is they like it too. They like the focus of it. It's nice. And it sounds like you said you've had the Erlang and Elixir people in the woodwork, but you found them come out in the area and just kind of say, yep, hey, we're here versus... Show up to a meeting and look, there's one or two other people besides me and Paul kind of thing here, right? Yeah. And it's it's just really cool. Uh, you know, we had a guy working on basically, I'd say, you know, an irrigation system doing it in ER Lang. And it's like, wow, like that's that's really neat. We've had people that work for Basho that live in the city now. Like that's really cool. It's just take, I think, a lot of things for granted and a lot of knowledgeable and smart people in your area. And by talking about some of these things, it pulls them out and it gets them involved. And you, you get to have a better feel of just like how much talent and how many super smart people are in your area. And I don't know, it, it, <laughs> it makes living in Oklahoma City tolerable. And it probably doesn't hurt the case either when you can go through and see that online user group that say, look, we've got 10, 20 people who join online every month. There is a viable community here if that company wants to start using this in production and is like, nobody uses this language. Nobody's interested in this enough. Yep. I would say also as, you know, someone who's organized and run a lot of like meet space user groups, 
being able to have an online presence and wait till it gets to 20 people and you know having three or four champions that really want to help the group succeed, it's much easier to do that, have that base, and, and then transition to a you know physical location or meet space group rather than fighting the burnout of having to hustle really hard without that stuff already in place when you're starting a new group or trying to get something like an elixir or you know phantom JS group off the ground or even postgres for that matter those sound really good and it's i wanted to get your perspective on that because i think it was an interesting approach to user groups that i don't hear too often about look we've got it yes we're all in the same area so we could meet up if we need to for because we're both in the same area but we now know each other exist but we're primarily online and we don't have to go take an evening out and drive an hour or two hours across town in traffic and then another half an hour or an hour back because it's on the quote unquote wrong side of town from where I, where I am. Yeah. Well, and like if you have kids, you have to run them places. It just becomes a logistical problem or, you know, I meant to go today because it was at lunchtime, but the database blew up at work and I didn't feel comfortable leaving it in a, you know, like a shattered state to go, you know, talk about this thing. It's just really cool. And I think another thing that Paul did that's also underappreciated is, you know, having the meeting on some Tuesday and then two weeks later saying that, you know, at the same time, I'll be online available, you know, for one-on-one. If you're doing the problem and you're stuck or something, just talk to me one-on-one and we can work through it together. And I thought that was really cool and something that I don't necessarily think about. I just thought it was another good gesture that helps like promote and grow. And I mean, that's also the kind of person that Paul Lamb is. So I know you want to keep the group small, but is there openness to having a larger mailing list or community online that's not participating in all of those meetings? But if someone says, hey, I've got this question, here's how I did it, and have people who are interested in just finding out more who may not necessarily be direct in Oklahoma City but want to know about how it's progressing and see the reaction, is that is there an availability to be able to kind of be less active participants in that community and just kind of be observers and see how they go on and offer their as you said, we pulled Rob Connery in to see how he did this, or we pulled Johnny Wynn or whoever it is, or we managed to get Jose Valine. But if someone hops on that mailing list and says, oh, here's some stuff that's more for our community and pipes in and joins in. Yeah, it's elixir.school. <laughs> I mean, it's a public website. There's nothing that's going to stop you from signing up and talking about it. And the only problem with actual meeting is that, you know, it's on you know, Skype or Google Hangout. So there's the problem with just a number of people that can join a session. That's one of the reasons to, you know, keep it small just because there's, there's, there's problems that way in getting like a hosting or a video chat interaction that can scale up from there. But yeah, you know, it's elixir.school. You can go on, check it out. You can start your own group too and do the same thing. I think Paul's very open about showing, you know, what's going to happen, what happened. So, I mean, just copy pasta. And that's kind of what I was getting at is being able to sit there and watch and help build up that community and watch and see how that develops and grows to be able to take those lessons, positive and negative, and adjust it for your specific community that you might be looking for. Yeah, it was literally register a domain, throw, uh, you know, I think through a discourse on DigitalOcean, and was good to go. Discourse being the app that is basically a message board of sorts. I assume people know what discourse is and surely they know what DigitalOcean is now by the, if they've listened to the start of the show. We're getting close on time. So is there anything else that we left out that you want to make sure we cover before we end the call? We've still got a little bit of time, but I don't want to keep you 
over time, but I want to make sure we have time to cover anything else we've missed. So is there anything we missed? I don't think so. Not that I can really think of, but we did cover quite a bit. So that was cool. So is there anything you want to plug? Do you have any appearances or any other projects? You've kind of talked about Mobius, but is there anything you want to make mention to get people involved with or at least know about? Or if you're going off and doing any other presentations about lessons you've learned or anything you want people to know about in general? That's the only thing I would recommend is take a couple hours to just play with something new. I think it's really neat. Again, as someone like I'm a database person and I can still go out and try new languages and play with them. And I think that like, that's really exciting to me that that's even possible because <laughs> there wasn't always a time where we could do that. So I just say, you know, pick something new, try it. You may not like it. That's great. Not everything is meant to be liked. That's about all I would say. That sounds like a great call to action for the audience. So where can people find you online if they want to follow what's going on in your learnings? Oh, I blog twice a year at datachomp.com. You can also find me saying nonsense at at datachomp on Twitter. And that's about it. You can email me, rob at datachomp.com. And, you know, I will typically always reply within a month or two. That sounds good. I'll make sure to get those added to the show notes so people can find you and find out more. Cool. And I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Rob, for taking your time out of your day to join me to talk about looking and learning functional programming, especially from a different perspective of someone who doesn't consider themselves a programmer or an app dev as their primary role. Thanks, Proctor. Let's get uh, burritos in Dallas sometime. Yeah. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.